Would you join with me in prayer? Dear Lord, I thank you so much. I thank you for your provision for us. I thank you for your truth that never changes. I just pray that you fill us with your Holy Spirit. Help us to understand and comprehend and apply better than we naturally could. Open our hearts to you even as we open your word to us and fill us to overflowing with your spirit. We give you this time in Jesus' name. Amen. When I went to college, I went to a school that was about seven hours away from my home, and I didn't have a car, so I just kind of got plopped there, and I knew I wasn't going to be able to get home for several months. And I still remember the first day that I was uh, in my dorm room, and I met my, my, my roommate, and I'd never had to share a room with somebody before. I mean, I'd been to like camps and things where for a week or two I was with somebody's roommate, but the idea of being stuck with another human being in an enclosed space for several months, that I'd never had to deal with that before. My brothers had, but I had not. And I remember thinking to myself as I'm unpacking, Mike, you have to know my mom. I came with a giant box of like tuna tins and, and a, a, a decorative tin of Ritz crackers, you know, with the four sleeves and it's beautiful. Thing. She sent me with all sorts of brownies and all sorts of different things. Um, and uh, I remember telling my roommate, Joe, I'm like, I want to remind myself that, that, that what's mine is yours. We're going to be living together. We need to see this as our, as our place. Because that's kind of what I grew up with, with my household, my mom and dad. Um, for lack of a better term, the, the idea of hospitality, of, of saying you want to help the other person to feel comfortable, to feel welcome. And I say for lack of a better term because when I, when I say hospitality, different people mean different things by that. I mean, for some people, hospitality is I've got to get my house looking perfect and I've got to you know, have the most perfect food and the most perfect dessert and the most perfect decorations for the, this season. And I have to, everything's got to be perfect and I am a hostess. And that is hospitality. That's a level of that. Um, it also could just be showing off. You know, there's that too. But it can be hospitality of saying, I wanted to do this for you. I wanted to do something meaningful for you. It can be. Perhaps a, a, a deeper level of hospitality are the people that say, you know, welcome, you're welcome to our home. This, this, we want you to be part of what we're doing here. This is something that matters to us and we want you to feel like you're welcome here, that you are, you're a part of this. Because sometimes with that first group, that can actually make somebody feel uncomfortable, can't it? To know that somebody spent hours and hours and hours and hours and hours and hours and hours working their fingers to the bone because you were going to be there for 15 minutes. You know, it's like, okay, now I feel guilty to visit you, which is the opposite of hospitality. But the second group is like, no, we want you to feel good about visiting us. So uh, every, every Friday night, we, we, Dad cooks pork chops. And so we're going to put another pork chop on the grill for you because we want you to feel welcome here. And that is really good. However, technically, even that can go somewhat south. Because sometimes when we say we want you to feel like you can connect with what we're doing, no matter how nicely you do it, the, 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 the guests can still feel kind of like a third wheel. I'm being attached to what you guys are doing. This is what our family does here. You're welcome to join us in it. The thing that my mom and dad always pushed, especially my mom, was this idea of saying, we're not trying to just welcome you into what we're doing. We want you to feel at home. I don't want to just welcome you to our home. I want you to be home. This is home. And so we, 
we, she would always make sure that we had like cookies or something that people could eat and, and, and she'd make sure that we had decent food for people. But she's also like, and here's where the glasses are. Feel free to, feel free to grab the glass and, and pour yourself whatever you want. In fact, I went and I didn't know what kind of drinks you like, so I got a bunch of different kind of juices, every kind of soda that I could think of, filled the pantry with them, knock yourself out, get whatever you want. Because you're home. I'm not going to necessarily always serve you, but I'm going to make sure that you are being served and you have everything you need. The idea is to make you as comfortable as possible. Because I remember learning etymology. Yeah, I love etymology. But the word host, if you take it back to its original in the Latin, host, hospitality, hospital, hotel, youth hostel, it's all pointing back to the original Latin word hostis, which means guest. Host means guest, not host. Originally, hosting somebody means helping your guest to feel comfortable. It means other, the other people, the foreigner, the stranger, your guest. A hospital is for the people in the hospital, not for the hospital's sake. Your hosting is for your guest's sake, not for your hosting sake. So for instance, Let's say that your guest that's coming in is Jewish. Do you say, hey, we'll totally throw a, another pork chop on the grill for you? Well, that's not good hosting. Tell you what, for you, we'll throw a, a hamburger on the grill. That's, that's better while we eat our pork chop in front of you. What my mom would have done would have been to say, oh, we're having hamburgers. And if one of us would have been dumb enough to say, well, wait a minute, but we always have pork chops on Friday. That's what we do. Dad always grills pork chops. That's what we do. Aren't we inviting them into what we do? And she says, no, we're making them feel at home. I'm not even mentioning pork chops. What are we having for dinner tonight? Burgers. Now, that doesn't always work, because I remember that first day, what's mine is yours. I remember that first week coming back from class one time in the middle of the afternoon and being hungry. And so I went to my decorative tin of Ritz crackers and I opened it up and it was empty. I'd had like three. And I looked over at Joe and I said, Joe, what happened to the Ritzes? He's like, I ate them. I'm like, no, no. Wait, you ate four sleeves of Ritz crackers? And he's like, uh, yeah, I was hungry. I'm like, okay, well, first off, that's not healthy. Don't do that. That's not good. But you ate all of the Ritzes. And he said, well, you said what's yours is mine. I'm like, and mine. It's yours and mine. What's mine is yours and mine. It doesn't mean I'm just giving you everything. And for a split second, I was like, in my head, I'm thinking, okay, that's it. What's mine is mine. What's yours is yours. We're labeling everything. We're drawing a line down the middle of the room. This is mine. You can't touch my stuff. I'm like, that's not tenable. To circumscribe like that and still live with somebody, that's not going anyplace healthy. That's just inherently going to go to bad places and lead to bitterness and frustration and protecting what's my... Actually, we're going to talk about a guy named Diotrephes in a minute. I want you to remember that. It makes sense to say, I need to protect what's mine from encroachment from you. But instead, instead I'm like, wait, no, no. Tell you what, let's make a rule. What's mine is ours, which means please don't eat any more than roughly half of what's ours. Please don't finish something that's mine without at least asking me first. 
can we just put a, a few ground rules? Should have probably thought of that the first day, but never dreamt you'd eat four sleeves or fritzes in one sitting. I mean, think about it. It is, it is dangerous to be hospitable, isn't it? If you ever actually sit down and read Les Miserables, there's this Monsignor that uh, invites a stranger into his home and says, it's mine is yours. And so the guy steals his candlesticks. Of course, having said that, that becomes the avenue by which the Monsignor introduces Jean Valjean to grace and to Christ. So maybe that's more important than the candlesticks or the Ritz crackers. Okay, we're going to talk about 3 John. So if, if you haven't done so, grab your Bibles, open up to 3 John. Hint, it's right after the 2 John we talked about last week. I know, we're going to the Johannine, Johannine epistles. So as we're going through, we're going to, to 3 John. And this is one of the few New Testament letters that's, in, 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 that's, that's written and addressed to an individual. And it gives three brief character sketches. A guy named Gaius, a guy named Diotrephes, and a guy named Demetrius. So 3 John 1.1. 1, 1. The elder, because remember from last week, that's John talking about himself. I'm not going to go into all that. Go listen to last week. So John, this is from John, to my dear friend Gaius. Literally, my beloved Gaius, whom I love in the truth. Dear friend, beloved I pray that you may enjoy good health and that all may go well with you even as your soul is getting along well. And that's, in some ways, your basic, you know, first century personal letter style greeting. Gaius is one of the most common Roman names. So this is basically just, dear Bob, hope you're doing well. And yet, do you see anything, even in these couple of verses, that echo what we talked about last week in 2 John? I mean, the word beloved... Derivations of the word love are used three times in rapid succession, bracketing the word truth. Does that remind you of what we talked about last week? Truth and love and love and truth and truth and love and love and truth. Being in truth is the root of true Christian love. Not only is Gaius John's friend, but he's also his fellow Christian in God's truth. It's the truth of Christ that binds us together. I, I feel like I'm being redundant, and yet this keeps coming up in the Bible. Truth is the proper foundation for love, and that means that love is the necessary application of truth. And I love that this isn't some kind of remote or ecclesiastical letter. It's this genuinely, deeply personal letter. John's like, I love you guys. The Bible is absolutely God's word, and every, every verse in this is something that can train us and teach us and edify us. And yet... Don't ever lose the humanity of it. Different books are written with different vibes. They sound different. The, the, the verbiage is different. Some of it is poetical. Some of it is very coarse. But all of it is a history and account of relationships between God and his people and between people and people. So when John calls Gaius his beloved, whom he loves in the truth. I'm reminded of John's gospel. If you remember, John repeatedly refers to himself as the beloved disciple. In John 13, John 19, John 21, over and over, he reminds us that he had this close, real friendship with Jesus. Jesus is his sovereign, his authority, his rabbi, but he's also his cousin and he loves him. And Jesus loves him dearly. 
John's like, I got that same kind of loving authority disciple relationship here with Gaius. You're not an underling. You're not just a guy I know in my church. You're my beloved friend. And that's the true root of true discipleship, is walking the same walk together in relationship. Being part of the body necessitates that we love one another. And if we don't love one another, we may be sitting in the same room, but we're not part of the same body. It gave me great joy, he says, to have some of the brothers come and tell about your faithfulness to the truth. (laughs) Love, truth, love, love, truth, love, truth, love, truth, truth, love, love, love. And how you continue to walk in the truth, truth, love, love, truth, truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth, truth, love, truth, 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 love, 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 truth, 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 love, truth, love, truth, truth, love, truth. My beloved friend, my brother, my spiritual son, love, 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 truth, truth, truth. I love that John's compliment is twofold. He's, he's like, you're not just following Christ well, but you're being observed following Christ's love, Christ well. You're, 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 we, we sometimes will lurch to the two extremes of either doing things so that we are noticed or not caring at all at all about what anybody else ever thinks. I'm like, well, I I personally don't tend to care too much about what people think about me, but I will say I, I, I do take it very seriously what they think about Christ when they look at me. That does matter. So truth is we need to be visible in our Christianity, not for our own sake, but for the sake of those that we're trying to reach and for the sake of the Christ we're trying to emulate, the Christ we're trying to model, the Christ we're trying to reflect. It's a natural balance exuding Christ to others overflowing naturally into the lives of others. How many... How many people that you interact with on a regular basis know how important Christ is to you? If we were to poll the people you work with or poll the people you know, poll your neighbors maybe even most pointedly, pull the last person you had an argument with. What would they say about how much you're reflecting Christ? I don't, say that to, I don't say that to make you feel guilty, but it should be something that's sobering because we're told that we should, we should take that seriously. No. Dear friend, beloved, he says for a third time, You are faithful in what you're doing for the brothers, even though they're strangers to you. I love that John's biggest compliment is one of hospitality. And it's not just about being sociable. It's it's crucially important in the ancient world. The Arabs, the Greeks, the Romans, the Jews all prized hospitality. Paul said, share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Peter told us, offer hospitality to one another without any grumbling. But it's more than just saying... Here, I'll I'll make you a pork chop or lobster thermidor. Um, It's telling people and showing people that your home is their home, that they are home. Not just in your household, but in our church, saying, you walk through those doors, this is home. This is a safe place. Not safe as in you'll never be made uncomfortable. No, 
but we're not going to damage you. We're going to do everything we can to help draw one another to Christ. You may not like what you hear, but we're trying to love one another in truth. Not trying to love you in such a way that always makes you comfortable or always makes all the problems that you thought you had all just go away. But what will actually draw you closer to Christ, or pointedly, what, what would I do that might actually draw you farther away from Christ? Well, he says, these brothers that have come and talked with me about it have told the church about your love. You'll do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. It was for the sake of the name that they went out, receiving no help from the pagans, from the Gentiles, from the not us, is basically the word he uses here, which shows why it's so crucial for us to show hospitality to one another. If you remember in Second John, he's like, do not show hospitality to the people that are going out from the church and drawing people away from Christ. Do not help them. Do not, don't kick him in the shins. Don't be malicious, but do not enable them. Do not encourage that. Do not support ministry that draws people farther away from God. These guys are the opposite of that. He's like, no, these guys are going out and drawing people closer to the Lord and they need support because the world's not going to do that. Uh, the concept of begging friars or, or uh, people that would go out as itinerant teachers and, and, and beggars and, and teach something and then ask for money for their teaching, that was common. Everybody saw that in the ancient world. But these guys asked nothing from their mission field. They didn't preach Christ and then say, now give me money. So Paul and Peter and here John all say, we need to be supporting those missionaries. The church needs to be supporting those missionaries. So that it's never a, give me a dollar and I'll tell you about Jesus. It's, no, I just go out and I know that the family of God will support me. I'm going to go bring people to Christ. And I don't want to, we don't necessarily want these guys to go to inns. Back in the day, inns were not that great a place. Inns in the, in the first century were, well, they're oftentimes attached to, uh, to, to places of ill repute, places that were grungy and flea-infested and crime-ridden, and you were as easy of, 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 of getting robbed as you were of getting a night's sleep. Ironically, Joseph and Mary may have gotten lucky that there wasn't any room in any inn in the area and that they didn't stay there. As we see in a minute, though, beyond that, Gaius could have gotten into major trouble by showing this kind of hospitality. But building fellowship, maintaining fellowship, was crucial to him. It was for the sake of the name, John says, that these missionaries went out, receiving no help from the pagans. We ought, therefore, to show hospitality to such men so that we may work together for the truth. Love based on truth, truth necessitating love. It's hard not to see that theme just keep coming back up. I mean, once you see it, it just, it just keeps bashing you in the face. And yet we still struggle with that. Today, we still struggle with that. We cling so desperately to truth that we abandon loving one another. Or we're so desperate to love one another that we abandon the foundation of truth. And both of those are dangerous. So guys, as a role model of fellowship for us, not just to be sociable, even to be familial, but so that we may work together for the truth. He's like, by just being hospitable, by opening your door, by saying, how do I support these guys? You're actually working to promote the gospel. Like Paul said in Ephesians, 
From Christ, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. The growing and the building up, that's discipleship. The, the joining and holding together in love, that's fellowship. Each function requires the other one to work. Otherwise, it's just teaching or being nice. So Gaius is supposed to be someone to emulate, to say this, this is how we should live. I could stop the sermon here and say, go be a Gaius. It'd be nice to be able to stop the letter here because it's only, you know, like eight verses. It's really short and we get out early. But unfortunately, John continues with character study number two, diatrophies. And if I just said, go be a Gaius, you might say, sure, sure, yeah, yeah. But we have to look at diatrophies. I wrote to the church... But Diotrephes, who loves to be first, will have nothing to do with us. Gaius loved the truth. Gaius loved his brothers in Christ. Diotrephes loves being first. He loves being appreciated, being lauded, getting what he deserved. He circumscribes, this is mine, right? I want this, and you can't have this. Myritzes. But here's the saddest bit be easy to paint diatrophies with a black handlebar mustache and say he's just evil. He might be. Or he might love God. He might be like David. Diatrophies might love God, but not quite as much as he likes diatrophies. David loved God, but David didn't love anybody as much as he loved David. Diotrephes might love God, but he doesn't love anybody as much as he loves Diotrephes. Because he seems to be a member of the church. In fact, as we read this letter in its totality, he seems to be a leader in the church, maybe even the leader in the church. This is a churchy Christian guy, right? Okay, love being first, love being in charge, love being in a position to make big decisions, love that. And resented John and all the other apostles. Seemed to have resented any authority or opposition as we go along here wasn't necessarily evil unless you consider by definition that resentment to be evil I don't know have you ever resented somebody who had authority over you and by golly they weren't as good as you are and why do they get to have authority that guy doesn't know what he's talking about he hasn't gone through my life experiences he doesn't know what right does he have what right does she have to tell me you, you don't I don't need to listen to this kind of I don't know, you ever do that Anyway, he may have even seen himself as being a good Christian. Strong leader in the church, making sure that things happen the way they should happen because he understood best. And the New Testament church is in flux. Still only a couple decades after Jesus died, so who's in charge of the local church? Is that the apostles who are wandering around telling people things? Is that James and the council in Jerusalem writing letters going, you must do it this way? Or is it the local leadership, the pastor of that local church who's actually shepherding that group? Who's in charge? Who's, what's the answer to that one, by the way? Is it, is it the apostles or the council or the pastor? Who's in charge? Christ. Yes, but ultimately the answer to who's in charge is don't accept the question the way it was asked. Which guy is in charge? Christ. No, 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 no. I mean, who's, who's ultimately in charge? Christ. And if you 
if you yab at that. Yeah, but I mean, who's actually rubber hits the road? Christ. No, okay. Once you yab at that away, you've already taken the wrong steps. I don't know, maybe Diotrephes saw himself as a really good pastor. I don't know if he's a really rotten fellowshipper. Diotrephes loves to be first, and he'll have nothing to do with us. So if I come, I'm going to call attention to what he's doing, gossiping maliciously about us. Because if there's anything more dangerous than being toxic, it's being infectiously toxic, right? I'm going to gossip maliciously. I'm going to poison the well for everyone. His actions are divisive. His motives are spiteful. And at best, he's being selfish. At worst, he's dividing instead of building. But his actions are wrong because his heart is wrong. Diotrephes is the opposite of Gaius. He's not walking in the truth literally because he's spreading malicious gossip. But he's also not walking in the truth spiritually because without love, there is no truth. If you're not loving, then you're not walking in the truth. And without truth, there is no love. And without truth and without love, you, we, I, we're anti-Christ. I don't want that. I don't want to be that. So John says, I'm going to call attention to what he's doing, gossiping maliciously about us. Not satisfied with that, he refuses even to welcome the brothers. The household of God refusing to welcome the household of God. The household of God saying, I want nothing to do with another chunk of the household of God. What church would do that? Every church that's ever existed would do that at one point or another. That's not the way it should be. But it ignores the the apostles' authority that they were given in Matthew 28, refusing to welcome other workers in Christ that were told to give hospitality to, refusing even to talk to John in verse 9, shutting off the rest of the body to protect his power. Diotrephes is like, no, I'm I'm controlling this. And John says, I'm going to deal with Diotrephes when I come. and It's probably not going to be a fun conversation. What's interesting, though, is what doctrinal error is Diotrephes being accused of here. That John is like, I will come and I will deal with this guy. Because of his views of fellowship. A lot of times we're like, oh yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, fellowship is great, potlucks. But I mean, discipleship. The truth of the word, the capital T, truth. You go, this guy is being presented as the opposing negative example by John because of fellowship issues. How important is that? How important is it that we, we don't get that this guy is preaching doctrinal error, we get that this guy is showing doctrinal error by his bad fellowship, his lack of love. That's how important this is. If if devotion to personal gain is the root of all sin, then the selflessness of genuine fellowship has to at least be part of the cure. But then John says something interesting. Diotrephes refuses to welcome the brothers. He also stops those who want to do so, and he puts them out of the church. You go, oh! So he's so self-absorbed that he will disfellowship his opponents, and even those who care for his opponents who support his opponents. Not even the pagans would have done that. And here he is drawing other people into his sin. We as a church are disfellowshipping them. Why? Because I really don't like them. Because I really don't like what they're doing. I really don't... I want to be first. 
Our actions are never in a vacuum. His actions are causing other actions and causing the church to do other actions. So now if he says, we are kicking that person out of the church, the church either has to speak against its pastor or split or accept this sinful disfellowshipping. No matter what, you've just damaged everybody. It's never just diatrophies' sin. Like we talked about in Sunday school, accusation breeds accusation, breeds accusation, breeds accusation. It doesn't even have to be real or accurate. But now, think back to the first example. If Gaius is openly, actively supporting the missionaries that Diotrephes refuses to talk to and is putting people out of the church if they support those missionaries, what does that say about Gaius? This guy's got guts. Fellowship guts. You don't think about it like that. You know, fellowship, you go, yeah, that's nice. It's warm and fuzzy. And you go, no, this guy is fighting for fellowship. That takes some serious moxie. Dear friend, he says in verse 11, beloved, John says, for the fourth time. We're in verse 11. He's called him beloved four times. Don't imitate what's evil, not diatrophies, but what's good. You keep doing that. Anyone who does what's good is from God. Anyone who does what's evil, I don't think he's even seen God. I don't think they even understand what it is that they don't understand. It's not enough just to get rid of bad models, bad habits. You've got to replace them with something better. Didn't Jesus even do a whole parable about that? You clean out one demon, you don't fill the house with something good, seven more come. No, you got it. It's not enough. You could swoop in and do this grand gesture. But if you don't change the system, if you don't change what's wrong, you're just going to fall back into it. Don't do what the world does. Don't respond the way the world does. Don't follow the blind into their blindness. Don't say, it's okay, stay blind, and I'll help you stay blind. No, that's not loving. Find a good model. Imitate that. But John's not done yet. Character study number three, Demetrius. Demetrius is well spoken of by everyone, John says. And he gives John this threefold actual endorsement. He says he has this public witness like Gaius. Everybody likes him. In fact, if you remember, Paul said in 1 Thessalonians that he complimented the church that their example had witnessed the gospel of Christ all over their whole region. You're, everybody is talking about this. And it's not like a, <laughs> everybody's talking about me. It's like, no, you've actually done what you're supposed to do. You're, you're a good ambassador of this. Peter in 1 Peter 2 urges us to live in such a way that even those who deny Christ can't deny Christ in us. They can't deny the integrity that we're living out. Even if they say, I don't like Christians, I don't like Christ, I don't believe the Bible, they look at you and they go, but your life is above reproach. There's nothing in your life I can look at and go, you're winking at sin there. That's even one of the requirements in uh, Titus or First Timothy of a leader in the church, isn't it? That no one in the church has anything against them or against their spouses or against their families. That they, that their witness matters, not for self-aggrandizement, but because you're leading other people to be closer to the Lord. Demetrius is well spoken of by everyone, and even by the truth itself. Second thing, and second endorsement, he has this inward witness, like Gaius does. He's walking in the truth. Truth itself would testify for Demetrius if it could. He's an excellent example of this balanced biblical Christian. He has an outwardly upright life and an inwardly, genuinely upright life. 
He's living a life worthy of the calling he's received. And John even says, we also speak well of him, and you know that our testimony is true. There's a third one. Demetrius is as our fellowship witness, John says. The, the apostles, the disciples, we think he's cool. So guys should trust him too. No matter what Diotrephes might end up saying about him, no matter what he might do to, to Gaius because he defends Demetrius, stand up for this guy. That's, if you haven't noticed, that's six references to truth in 12 verses. How important is truth to John? And yet, how important is love to John? Truth, love, truth, love, love, truth, truth, love. Truth in love, love in truth. We're loving in the truth. We are true about our love. We are truth-loving, loving truth. So how would John handle it if you go, you know, let's not call sin, sin. It might make people feel uncomfortable. Or let's help people, even if it means helping them to continue in their sin. Because right now they're in a really sticky place. Well, if doing that would keep them in the sticky place, is that helpful? Well, no. Well, then let's not do that. Conversely, how would John feel if he went, I totally disagree with this person, so I want nothing to do with him. I think this person is wrong. Therefore, no, let's kick him out of the church. I think you annoy me. So, you know what? You're not my brother anymore. I'm going to cease to love because my understanding of the truth is so important to me. I have much to write with you. To you, I have much to write you, but I don't want to do it with pen and ink, which is exactly what he said last week. And I'm right there with him. I hate having complex conversations with people over texts or emails or letters. Bothers me when it bothers me when I when I hear Cameron talking to Mark about Sherry. Well, Cameron, talk to Sherry. Just talk. Don't do that. That's toxic. It's poisonous. Don't do that. Let's get face to face. I want to be able to. Understand your nonverbals. I want to be able to connect immediately. I want, to, I want to connect with you in person. So John just says, you know what? I hope to see you soon. We'll talk face to face. Peace to you. The friends here send their greetings. By the way, greet the friends there by name. He even concludes with fellowship. It's like, it's not just a personal connection. It's saying, no, I, I, there's something profound about being together. And, and I want you to greet the people there by name because I know them. It's like Paul greets people by name. But the apostles in Jerusalem aren't just elders and authority figures overseeing members of churches. We're family. I love you guys. We're supposed to love one another. Diotrephes is supposed to be loving you guys too. Please greet my friends by name for me. What Diotrephes has lost sight of is crucially important to John. So how crucial is it to us to build relationships with people, to support people when we're in need, to love people freely and graciously, to love strangers, to show hospitality to the other. Which doesn't mean that we support everybody and everything that they do. Second John taught us that. Even this teaches us. No, I'm not going to support everything that everybody does because that would be unhosty of me. I don't want to help you stick a fork in your eye. But like Gaius, we should support one another, live as a witness to those outside the church, build relationships with those inside the church. You can't be fighting one another like Diotrephes did. You need to seek to be last, not to be first. Submit to one another in reverence to Christ. Let this be an encouragement for you, not 
not a beat you over the head thing, but the looking at, you get two good role models sandwiching one, and it's like, great. But be examples to others. Witness outwardly, inwardly, within the body. We're all roommates in this fellowship because we're all ligaments of the same body. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you so much. I thank you that hospitality is so much more than presenting a good face. And it's so much more than inviting people to do what we're doing. But hospitality is to say to the guest, to the other, to the stranger, that they are not other and they are not stranger, they're home. And so I pray, Lord, help us to be that as your church, to bring people home, to love people who aren't us, and to love them in truth. And in the truth, to live that out in love. Help us to glorify you in Jesus' name as your ambassadors. Amen. We have the opportunity.